Sometimes my friend, the late Dr. William E. Hull, would step into the pulpit in Birmingham and would say, today's going to be tough. Put on your seatbelts. The cleansing of the temple is kind of tough. Put on your seatbelts. The temple in ancient Jerusalem was originally constructed by King Solomon a thousand years before Christ. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century before Christ and rebuilt 70 years later when the exiles returned. This second temple was then enhanced by Herod the Great two decades before Jesus was born. King Herod was not motivated by religious conviction, but by the architectural legacy that he was intent on leaving across the land of Palestine. The sanctuary of the temple itself was by design not very large nor particularly grandiose, but Herod's temple mount was more than impressive. The temple was located on the pinnacle of a mountain, Mount Moriah, and in order to accommodate the masses on the top of a mountain, Herod's engineers constructed a huge retaining wall around the perimeter. The wall was constructed and backfilled, eventually giving a 35-acre plaza on the top, a flat plaza where folks could gather, by conservative estimate, 100,000 worshipers at one time. One stone at the base of that retaining wall measures 44 feet long by 11 feet high, perhaps 8 feet deep. It was carved out as a huge cylinder estimated to weigh as much as 300 tons. That's 660,000 pounds and that cylinder was rolled several miles from a quarry outside of Jerusalem, powered by slave labor and oxen. And once it was in place, masons carved off the front face of that cylinder, which was then rolled flat onto that surface. And then they carved three more dimensions so that that cylinder became a huge rectangle. On the top of this base, 44 courses were placed, reaching a total height of over 100 feet. Because it was massive and located at the top of a mountain, pilgrims traveling up to Jerusalem from all directions could see the temple far before, before they reached this hallowed ground. Such a project is difficult to conceive, even using modern machinery, that it took half a century to complete with manual labor is no surprise at all. Standing there one day, Jesus said you could tear it all down and he would rebuild it in three days. The problem is, the relic is still standing. Now, I'm not referring to the physical structure of the temple, of course. In the year 70 of the Common Era, the Romans crushed a Jewish rebellion and raised that temple, destroyed it forever, a loss which has never been fully repaired. All that remains of Solomon's original is Herod's vast ego, the western side of that retaining wall, that 44-foot stone that you can still see. The western or wailing wall is the only remnant that remains of the physical temple. But it wasn't that temple that was Jesus' main concern. Now, of course, the gospel writer named John told this story and spoke of a, quote, temple, its destruction and rebuilding in three days as a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. That imagery retains powerful symbolism for Christians. But if those words have a historical precedent in the mouth of Jesus, 
Scholars suggest a meaning as powerful with implications just as disruptive as Jesus' actions in the temple that day. John's telling of this story is slightly different from the narrative as it is found in our other three Gospels. The temple would not accept either Greek or Roman currencies because they bore the image of Caesar, and Scripture prohibited graven images, so those coins had to be exchanged for a currency designed for temple use only. These money changers, who were just currency exchangers, now they may have been cheating the people, but that's not why John says Jesus was angry. Reading the nuance carefully, Jesus isn't condemning them for robbing the people. His activism in the temple that day put a halt to the practice of sacrifice altogether. Now, most pilgrims had traveled sometimes for days to get there. Most pilgrims had to buy an animal for sacrifice. All the pilgrims had to have their currency exchanged. Those people there, they had to be there. The money changers, the sellers of animals, they had to be there. When Jesus put a halt to their practice, he ended the practice of sacrifice altogether. He brought, us, brought it to a screeching halt and called to question the theology that was the very heart of the whole religion in the process. A scholar named Caroline Lewis says, Jesus isn't quibbling about malfeasance. He calls for a complete dismantling of the entire system. Underneath this critique lies the intimation that the temple itself is not necessary. The sacrificial system, the temple, if we can use that word in quotes, if we can understand that word as a reference to the entire theological edifice, even the cultural ethos that was built around it, the sacrificial system was at the center of the common Jewish understanding of access to God. How do we appease God? We offer sacrifice. A pigeon, an ox, a perfect lamb without blemish. The activism of Jesus in the temple that day was radical and dangerous. It was subversive and revolutionary, a liberal critique of the heart of Judaism. But it was not a new criticism. You can hear it at least as far back as the prophet Samuel, the last of the judges of Israel, who says in a dialogue with King Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of God? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice. This bold critique of the theology of sacrifice dates a thousand years before Jesus. Then eight centuries before Jesus, the prophet Micah puts an even finer point on it. Amy and I quote part of this prophecy every single Sunday in this sanctuary. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before the Lord with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn 
for the transgressions of my soul, the fruit of my body for my sin? No. God has told you, mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with God. Does God require sacrifice? Or does God just want our obedience and justice and kindness and humility? I hope you understand how radical the actions of Jesus were that day. They challenged the very core of the religion as most Jews of that day understood it. Even though that prophetic critique had been offered for at least a thousand years. The challenge was regarded as blasphemous, even heresy. It got Jesus killed. But the practice and the theology of sacrifice has always been attractive to human beings. It's easier to symbolically put our sins on the back of some goat, some scapegoat, and drive it out into the wilderness, or to literally sacrifice one human for another. That's easier than to accept our own responsibility. Caiaphas, who was the high priest in Jerusalem and participated in the crucifixion of Jesus, Caiaphas sneered in righteous indignation at the people, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Thousands of years of human bloodshed have been justified by what Walter Wink calls the myth of redemptive violence. The powerful idea that violence is often necessary can be good, even ordained of God, that all manner of death and bloodshed can be justified by a theology of sacrifice. Now I hope you understand by now why this passage is so difficult. The system that Jesus sought to overturn is still very much with us. And not just on some periphery of Christianity. That system of atonement by sacrifice that was the heart of the temple's practice has been reconstituted in a belief that Jesus himself is the final victim offered on the altar of the world to appease a bloodthirsty God. The prophet Micah had asked the rhetorical question so beautifully, shall I give my firstborn for my sin? And though he answers in absolute terms, this kind of sacrifice is precisely not what God demands. The very same theology of sacrifice the redemptive violence of the death of Jesus is precisely how many Christians still understand God. Mark Heim is a professor at Yale Divinity School whose words have been helpful to me on this. He says, if Jesus just becomes the final, ultimate victim, a bigger and better victim in this ungodly machine, rather than tearing down the mechanism of scapegoating, 
we build it up. Rather than Jesus' death signaling the end of divine violence, the crucifixion becomes the highest justification of it. How do you rebuild a temple? You tear it down. And you rebuild from the rubble. The late Dr. Gail O'Day, former dean of Wake Forest Divinity School, says Jesus' dramatic actions issue a challenge to the contemporary church. Christian faith communities must be willing to ask how the status quo of our religious practices, our understanding, our theology, how that has been absolutized and therefore is closed to the possibility of change and renewal. What temples have we built that need to be torn down? Where and what is your activism? To be sure, if we are not actively working, down, working to tear down unjust systems, the silence of good people, the inertia of status quo, will only make the walls of injustice stronger. We live in a desperate age of anger and division. The cultural divide threatens every day to undo us. One of the newest battles is over the so-called cancel culture. You know, if you don't like somebody, you should just cancel them. And Dr. Seuss has been in the news recently in the crosshairs. They're trying to cancel Dr. Seuss. Maybe we need to think again. Theodore Geisel has just made the news for words that he rhymed in inappropriate cues. The left said it's cute, but too racist and rude. We can't expose our kids to the slightly so crude. Archaic, his pictures, picturing gender and bias. Oh, those leftist elites are so puffingly pious. They took on colonialism and then the imperialists. It's just kitty lit. Don't take this so serious. We love Dr. Seuss. You can't cancel his culture. Scream the right at the left. Don't act like a vulture. Don't act like you know. Don't scribble and scrawl like education helps in a world that's so small. Who cares if he rhymed wearing eyes with a slant? That's not so offensive. If you're white and you can't walk a mile in their shoes, see your face in their eyes, know the pain that he bears, see the child when she cries, yeah, the right is indignant of the politically correct, but would you be offended if I noticed your red neck? So maybe words matter, even cute little rhymes, even thoughtless expressions we use all the time, because our children learn from the images that swarm in their, free frontal, free, in their prefrontal cortices and help them to form basic ideas of people of values and rights, of what makes us mortal, of what's worth the fight. So let us stand firm, also be willing to turn, because the good that is real is so hard to discern, and sometimes it means letting go of the past, the stories we loved, even truths that were cast. We need that dear poet who lent us so much with rhythmic rhyming, a rhymer's deft touch. And we need his wise kinfolk. They did not overreach. They canceled six books, 
Seuss continues to teach. Systems are hard to tear down. We have been in the grasp of racism throughout the entire history of this nation. We just cannot seem to tear it down. The walls of sexist hierarchy and domination, the altars of homophobic hatred, the liturgies and litanies of xenophobia, the insiders and the outsiders, the walls of our systems are tall and strong. Our patriotism so quickly gets co-opted by our religion that we cannot separate our allegiances, Christ or culture. And our theology, Christian faith, bold and daringly centered in the cross of Jesus Christ, a symbol of humility, a sign of the power of weakness, a radical vision of self-giving love, our theology no less than that of our Jewish forebears is still a temple honoring the scapegoating of one for the many. If Jesus paid it all, maybe it doesn't cost me a thing. That's the very temple Jesus was trying to destroy. It's not his death or ours. It's his death as ours, as an example, as a critique of the conventional wisdom, as motivation, as a challenge. If any would be my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their own cross and follow me. Does God demand sacrifice? Yes, mine, my own. How do you rebuild a temple? First, you have to tear down the old one. May it be so. Amen.